Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What, like it's hard? Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. It is so good to be with you today. I'm back from my little summer break. I was gone for two and a half, maybe three weeks, which doesn't sound like that long, but it's the longest that I have gone without putting out a new episode of the show. And it was a really weird feeling. I really forced myself to just live life a little bit, relax, hike, walk, take care of myself get into all of the projects that I've been putting off and actually take time away from my email, which sounds kind of counterproductive. Like I should have used that time to be effective in planning and making sure that this show is in tip top shape for the next few months. But I've never actually taken a break from email, which was so nice. I feel like this is such basic self-care that I try to implement as much as I can. I do take social breaks every so often. I try to do a screen-free Saturday every week and have been doing that for about a year now. And I love a screen-free Saturday, but I really extended it. So I want to say thank you so much for sticking around. Thank you for being back. Thank you for giving me the grace to leave for a little bit and come back stronger, better than ever, more excited than ever to put out a really, really great show for you. And I'm really excited that today's episode is a book club episode, one of my new favorite type of episodes to put out. Once a month, we read a book with a friend and we discuss it. This month, we read The Conscious Closet by Elizabeth Klein, The Revolutionary Guide to Looking Good While Doing Good. And we read with Moji Egun. Moji is hippie Moji on Instagram. She is one of my dear friends in the zero waste space. And professionally, she is a zero waste consultant. Moji is the founder of Blue Daisy Consulting, which offers zero waste and sustainability consulting services to small businesses. She supports her clients in reducing waste by helping them find creative ways to keep trash out of the landfill without the overwhelm. I love Moji's content. And then once I learned that she was a zero waste expert professionally as well, I really wanted to read this book with her because I've been putting off the conscious closet for a little while, not really for any reason, but it is such a 
golden standard in the sustainable fashion space. It's a great handbook and one that is constantly being recommended across the board to me, to everyone on social, it seems, if you're trying to get into more sustainable fashion and building a conscious wardrobe. But more specifically, I'm concerned about closet audits. This is something that I've been thinking about since I read Megan McSherry's ebook on closet audits on building a conscious wardrobe. It's a really great ebook. Highly recommend if you are looking for some guidance in building your conscious closet beyond The Conscious Closet by Elizabeth Klein. So I've been thinking a lot about closet audits and what do I do with clothes that I want to get rid of and how do I actively ethically get rid of clothing, quote unquote. Is it best to donate? Is it best to give to friends? I love a clothing swap. And I'm also not someone who actively purchases clothing for the amount of discussions we have about fashion on this show. I love the fashion industry. I love admiring fashion. I am definitely someone who takes pride in her wardrobe, quite frankly. There are personality types, fashion personality types outlined in this book that Moji and I get into. And I want to share a little quiz on social so that you can also find your fashion personality type. Better understanding the kind of wardrobe that you are seeking to put together. I know that I'm not a minimalist and I would consider myself a style seeker by Elizabeth Klein's standards and definitions. Moji considers herself more of a traditionalist and we do get into that on today's episode, but my style seeking tendencies do not necessarily mean that I am always acquiring stuff. I really don't purchase all that much clothing. If I do purchase it, it's generally secondhand. If I am buying something new, I have a lot of guilt around buying new things without a really thorough understanding of the brand that I'm purchasing from, which I do get into on today's episode as well. And I talk about it all the time on social, just making sure that I am vetting brands that I'm purchasing from as much as possible. But being someone who admires fashion from afar does not necessarily mean that I have the most conscious closet. I hold on to things just like everybody else. I feel guilty about giving things away if I may use them in the future. And I'm like, what if I have to go to a brunch? What if I have to go to like a themed party and this secondhand Hawaiian shirt that I've been holding on to for three years finally comes in handy? So there's a lot of emotional work that needs to be done in building a conscious closet. But something that I liked so much about this book was it was really about if you are buying new things, if you're looking to build a conscious closet, what does it mean to buy quality pieces that will last for years, that will be versatile, that work for you, and are high quality? So a lot of different nuances to this book. I really liked it because it helped me think more deeply about things like looking at seams, looking at fabrics, how to mend and how to clean out weird stains. And everything that I've ever wanted to know about a conscious closet was put together in this book. So I'm excited for y'all to listen to the episode, whether or not you read the book, if you have in the past. The best part about book club is even if you have not read the book, especially the nonfiction topics, you can definitely follow along to the episodes. I think it's really informative. It's quite value packed, if I do say so myself. And it was a lot of fun. Moji and I just really vibe. We laugh. We have a good time. It's quite personal, especially when you're talking about clothing, when you're talking about your values, especially in the garment space. So it was a lot of fun to talk about with her. And I'm so excited for y'all to listen to it. I will go ahead and say here that I do during our talk today make references to previous specific episodes of Eco Chic that I will go ahead and link in the show notes. Namely, our first book club episode with Megan McSherry on the book 
Deluxe, How Luxury Lost Its Luster. It was our very first book club. I believe it came out towards the end of February. I'll link it below. And again, Megan McSherry did just recently release an ebook to also help guide you through your closet audits and rebuilding your closet in a conscious, sustainable way. And then I also refer to a discussion with Dr. Liz Sagrin. She is a writer for Fast Company who a few months ago caught a lot of fire and uh, virality, dare I say, around her article around federal regulation of the fashion industry. It was titled, President Biden Appoint a Fashion Czar. I link the article in the discussion with her, and that was also a really interesting conversation and episode about fashion regulation, how it could be better regulated, similar to perhaps the car industry. We talk about the different policies that do exist or do not exist, need to exist. So really fabulous if you're interested in more fashion policy discussion. I definitely recommend that episode. And then as I was saying on social, I do want to release a little quiz on how to figure out your fashion personality type, but I also put together a brief guide to different fabrics and textiles as learned from the book, as Moji and I do discuss today, going over the impacts and what to look for when you're looking at things such as cotton clothing, viscose or rayon, linen, hemp, and leather. So really great little cheat sheet there for you to save and refer back to. If you want to just get the basic understanding of different textiles, highly recommend that post, not just because it's mine, but I thought it was pretty value-packed too. So I'm excited again for y'all to listen to this episode. I want to know your thoughts on the conscious closet, what your fashion personality type is, what you look for in a very basic wardrobe. What are your core pieces? What are the things that you just don't mess around with anymore beyond fast fashion? What do you allow yourself to buy new? Because I used to be pretty pretty hard on myself for only buying things secondhand. And when it got to more specific things that I was looking for, that got increasingly difficult. So in turn, I just like haven't acquired that much stuff and I haven't really properly built out an adult wardrobe for myself in this uh, post-grad, post-pandemic life. So Anyway, long story short, to wrap it all up, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you do, make sure to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you never miss an episode. And you can also follow the show on Spotify. I've been listening to my podcast lately on Spotify, and half the time I have to search the show because I realize that I haven't actually followed it and I don't get updated on new episodes. So don't be like that. Go ahead and follow Eco Chic on Spotify so you never miss an episode. And I mentioned you can follow me on social at Eco Chic Podcast. All my links are always in the show notes. And as per usual, I'm looking forward to speaking with y'all again and hearing your thoughts on today's episode and on the conscious closet in general. We don't have a book club going on this month as we are halfway through the month of July, but in August, our book will be The Overstory by Richard Powers. That's a fiction book. Highly, highly recommended. It's won a whole bunch of awards. It's always on the recommended fiction book list beyond just environmental fiction. So I'm excited to read that one with y'all as well. So with that, let's get into it. We're speaking with Moji Egan all about The Conscious Closet by Elizabeth Klein, the revolutionary guide to looking good while doing good. Enjoy. Moji, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the show. It's so nice to have you. (laughs) I am really excited to talk with you today about the conscious closet because 
first of all, it was a book that was my want to read list for a very long time. So I'm glad to have someone to discuss it with because I feel like it covered so much, but even more so, I'm so glad that it's you that we're going to talk about this book together because you are a zero waste expert and probably one of the uh, most forward thinking conscious people that I interact with on the internet. Oh wow! So I was like, this is, <laughs> this is the perfect, this is the perfect match. So before we even just get into, tell me a little bit about your career and how you became such an expert in this field. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you. That's like really kind of you to say. Yeah. So I work in the zero waste space. I definitely had a non-linear career path. And so I didn't like study environmental science or sustainability consulting in college. I was mechanical engineering major. And so, yeah, so it feels like it makes no sense, but it actually makes total sense because I love problem solving and being analytical and looking at big systems and like all of that kinds of thinking. And so all of that is applied to my nerdiness of the environment. And so I just put those things together and zero waste consulting it is. How did you get into consulting? Because I feel like Freelancing is one thing, but it's a whole other issue to take on your own clients and Mm -hmm. services and actually advise people on zero waste. Yeah. So that was actually a huge thing that I'm still working through, but it took me uh, a while at the beginning to kind of feel comfortable with calling myself a consultant because when people hear that I'm a consultant, they think like, McKinsey and Bain and like all those like very fancy suits and travel all the time. And what I do um, is similar in the fact that the end goal is the same, like helping people strategize around zero waste, but my methods are very me and very playful and creative and holistic. And so it just took a lot of me like getting over my imposter syndrome and understanding that I have expertise too. And I, I do know what I'm doing. It just doesn't look like what they're doing. So it took a while, but I, I got there. <laughs> I appreciate that. I think that especially in consulting, there is this sense that you need to be so technically prepared Mm -hmm. to do that. But there are so many people in the field, not just of environmental work, but just across the board that know what they're talking about and don't need to look a certain way to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. I think especially as women, that has been one of my biggest hurdles to get over. Like there's nothing wrong with the exclamation points in my emails or, you know, those like smaller workplace kind of um, that like social infrastructure of a workplace of how do you get taken seriously? And then just taking that one step further to say, I'm going to form a career that really feels like me. Mm -hmm. I really respect that about you. Thanks. And I I definitely learned what you're saying about like being a woman in the workplace, like working in science and tech. I've always been one of the few women in the, in teams and workplaces. And so I had a lot of practice on what, when I talk, I talk with likes and I talk with pop culture references and I'm very just like, me like I don't try and like put on a professional voice and so I've noticed how people react to that and that's actually super powerful in communicating with people and so I just lean into it and make it work for me oh you're speaking my language (laughs) I have I have a very hard time watering myself down for Mm -hmm. the workplace and once I realized that there's nothing wrong with me being myself that was a game changer even starting the podcast when I first started, I was like, wow, if people are going to take me seriously as a climate scientist, I've definitely got to clean up my language and like haul in my pop culture references. And, sure. and are people going to understand what I'm trying to get across if I am truly speaking like my Miami girl self? And once I got <laughs> over that, I was like, I can be myself and be good at what I do. Yes. I love it. Switching gears a little bit. 
I want to hear about your personal understanding of zero waste, conscious living, and how that kind of leans into your closet. Would you consider yourself a conscious consumer? Do you think a lot about zero waste in conjunction with your clothing? Yeah. So I was actually really excited when you shared this book choice because I'm not like a fashion person. I feel like a lot of my clothes are secondhand just because like I like to be frugal and I'm kind of lazy. So I just buy like whatever I find that's convenient. Um, And so I was really interested to learn more about fashion, like from people who really are into fashion, because I feel like it's a different um, way of looking at things. And as I read through the book, which I'm sure we'll dive into more details later, but I was vibing so hard with the way that she talks about everything, because everything she said, I have an analogy to the work that I do in zero waste. And so it's very synonymous the way that we think it's just the way that we apply it, which is different. And I just thought that was really cool. I love that. I love that. Yeah. I am a secondhand shopper too, but I'm also definitely someone who thinks very heavily about clothing purchases Mm. when I'm buying something new. I, or even if I see something on Poshmark that I really like that is secondhand, I have a lot of guilt around purchasing and like acquiring stuff. Mm. So this book gave me a lot of perspective of like, if I am going to truly revamp a closet, what should I be looking for? When is it okay to buy new? When should I like cut myself a break? And when should I not? When should I keep those standards really high? So this gave me a lot of structure around that guilt, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. And it's actually really interesting. So I'm, I'm moving right now and with this move it's kind of like I'm using as like my level up period like I'm trying to like redecorate and just kind of like change the way that I do things to be a little bit more adult and one of those things is my closet and I feel like I'm kind of transitioning away from like college gear and like leggings and sweatshirts into a little bit more adult clothing and so building my conscious closet is definitely like on my to-do list right now so I love that I had this guy to kind of walk through the possibilities of what that looks like. Yeah. I'm in a very similar transition or I have been, I guess, for probably like two plus years now because of the pandemic. All I really bought during the pandemic was a couple of sweat sets and athleisure because I like to work out. So I was like, I'm going to spend my money on, you know, workout leggings and sports bras. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm at a point where I'm going out again, I'm like, okay, wow. Well, the clothing (laughs) that I last wore to a happy hour was, uh, when I was in graduate school, looking, you know, and, and at this point, my secondhand clothing is falling apart. Like there are things that I need to replace. Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, well, what do I really want my closet to look like? And the closet audit piece in this book, I cannot stop talking about my sister's sick of me talking about it. My friends are (laughs) sick of me talking about it. This closet audit was weighing on me so heavily because there are pieces that I'm emotionally attached to that I feel like I can't get rid of. And I wish I was moving so I could say, you know, I'm going to get rid of 50% of my stuff. Yeah. I believe the stat in the book was that about 25% of your closet is actually things that you use and the rest is just things that you're hanging on to. Yeah. When I read that, I was like, oh my God, I am due <laughs> yeah. for a clean out. Mm-hmm. No, totally. And I actually have a pile of clothes right here that I, I have been holding on to that I know that I'm never going to wear like party dresses from college or just like cute things that I know I love, but like I will never wear again. And so how do I ethically and thoughtfully replace it or get rid of it? Like that's been on my mind a lot lately. And 
I'm working through it. Like find, figuring out how to sell on Poshmark is new to me. And so like, that's something I'm exploring or like consignment. And so all of those things are just like adding to my repertoire of how to do this in a thoughtful way. I want to go to the part in the book where she discusses different types of style. Mm, and I yeah, like the know... minimalist and the, yeah. There's minimalist style seekers and what is the third one? I want to make like a little quiz, you know, like when we were kids and like going through a magazine oh, that's a where there's idea. like, if you're mostly A's, <laughs> you should do this. Cause it took me a while to kind of figure out the kind of style that I had, Wait, the what? traditionalists. Those there are the we three. Go. Yeah. The traditionalist is like the middle person, right? Like there's the minimalist right. style seeker. And then, yeah, I'm definitely the middle, the traditionalist because I like to think that I'm a minimalist, but I have too much stuff to be considered a minimalist. But I do like very simple colors and styles and the ability to mix and match. And so I, I just like she says in the book, like I do, I have my little capsule closet of things that I wear like almost every day. Like I just keep rotating. And then I also love to rent. I also love to like buy random colorful things that are just like bold pieces. And so, yeah, a mix and match of both for sure. That's a pretty happy medium. You don't crave fashion quite as much as a style seeker, which is what you said, Mm -hmm. but you prefer more novelty than a minimalist. Mm -hmm. So that is exactly what you said. That's pretty spot on. (laughs) Yeah. How about you? What do you think you are? I think I'm a style seeker. Okay. I get in these uh, phases where I don't particularly gravitate towards trendy clothing, but when I have an outfit idea in my head, Mm. I will make it happen. Love it. Like last spring, I really had this idea in my head that I wanted a huge oversized NASCAR jacket. Like one of those, like, this is again, oddly specific, not particularly (laughs) trendy, (laughs) but I was like, I've got to find the perfect one because I don't want to be advertising uh, an oil company, like a gas station oh, yeah. that sponsors these games. I don't want one that just says like trick cereal on the front. Like I don't like, <laughs> it took me so long to find one that was like the perfect oversized NASCAR jacket. And that yeah. was again, like oddly specific style, not something that I was like actively trying to kind of recreate a trend secondhand, mm-hmm. but I do that all the time. I'm like, how I do I find that. a giant, my latest Poshmark purchase was like a, I'll have to show it to you. It's like a belt with a big rhinestone heart buckle. Oh, it's wow. ridiculous. Very 2000s. Very <laughs> 2000s, but I found it from like a vintage store in Texas, like a, like an authentic old, you know, so I get these things in my head where I'm like, I have to find this secondhand. And a <laughs> yeah. lot of these like oddly specific outfits I have only exist that way. But then it puts me in a position where I have like a terrible capsule wardrobe where I have no plain white t-shirt or like sure. a good pair of denim jeans. So I hate being a style seeker, but I'll admit that that's where I'm at. I mean, it sounds like a blast. Like that's not how my brain works. And that <laughs> sounds like so much fun. <laughs> yeah. But I, I want to know also on this traditionalist journey that you are on to rebuild a bit more of a wardrobe of an adult wardrobe, mm-hmm. what are the things that you are holding on to as perhaps ideas or things that you're holding on to in your wardrobe, quite literally as the core pieces of your day to day? Yeah. So because of me having these very strange career choices, like when I worked in construction, it was very much like jeans, 
work boots and like a quarter zip. Like that's what I wore to work almost every single day. So like, that's what I had in my closet. And then when I switched to working for myself, it was like sweats and like athleisure. And then now I'm, I'm doing more like speaking and being more in public. So I need like formal dresses and pants outfits. And so like, I've had to kind of watch my closet grow with myself. And what I'm trying to do now is like create a capsule closet that will work for all seasons. So I don't want to have to like throw everything away when I, if I switch jobs again, or if I do something else with my life, like I want it to be central to who I am and things that I will wear regardless of where I'm at. So like a lot of just like basic silhouettes, basic t-shirts, basic pants that can be mixed and matched is like what I'm trying to figure out how to create. That's really a good strategy. In my opinion, there was a part in this book about building your conscious closet and thinking about capsule quote unquote pieces for any type of fashion personality type. And I really resonated with the bit about work clothes that there was uh, perhaps a lot of people have this idea that their work clothes cannot be their personality Mm. and they have to exist as kind of a capsule collection. And I totally resonated with that. I have like slacks that I would never wear anywhere except for an office or like blouses that are strictly work blouses. And it doesn't actually have to be that way. And that didn't occur to me until I read this book. Totally. And I love how she's just like, you can be creative with with your work clothes. Like as long as it's comfortable to you and like, depending on like what you're actually doing, like if you need to wear like work boots or whatever, but you can still be cute about it. Yeah. For some reason, I don't know why that was so radical to read. I was like, (laughs) oh, it never occurred to me that my office wardrobe can actually interact with the rest of my wardrobe. No, for sure. And then there was also a couple bits about like necklines. Like if you have a hard time buying plain blouses, find one neckline that works for you and just Mm -hmm. buy it in different colors. And I was like, oh, okay. Oh yeah. Excellent idea. (laughs) My, my partner makes fun of me so much because I am a t-shirt dress girl. Like I have maybe six different t-shirt dresses, but they're all different. Like one is a casual, like cotton one. One is like a knee length, fancy one. One is like a little bit more flirty. Like it's been, it's the exact same silhouette, like six different times. And he's just like, wow, you're wearing another t-shirt dress. I'm like, yeah, but I look good in it. So I'm going to keep sticking to it. Yeah. Obviously, if you look good in it, keep doing it. And I think I used to have this sense that I couldn't do that. And then I found like one square neck shirt that I was Mm. like, oh, wow, I've never tried this before. And now I look good. So I'm just going to buy it in all the colors and be done with all of the basic colors in my wardrobe. And I think the idea of outfit repeating in my head, I also associate with something really trendy, really stark. But because I buy these kind of like ridiculous style sneaking (laughs) jackets and belts, who cares if it's always the same shirt in a different color? Right. Exactly. So I think it's about balance. Yeah, absolutely. I think everything is always about balance, but yeah, I think just allowing ourselves to like, no one's paying as close of attention as we are to our wardrobes. And so if we wear the same shirt three days in a row and we're just styling it three different ways, like I don't think I've never had anyone comment on me and I do it all the time. So it's, I feel like it's totally fine. I completely agree. There was also a bit here about in the minimalist fashion personality type that there are plenty of people who consciously think about the colors in the wardrobe. Perhaps it's just like black and white or black, Mm -hmm. white, some pop of color. And if you have 30 pieces, let's say you can make outfits for the entire year and never repeat it. Mm-hmm. And when she said it that way, I was like, wow, what an interesting way to think about maximizing your closet after, again, considering this idea that a lot of people only use maybe 25% of their closet on average. Yeah. And it's really about thinking 
about versatility. And if you're buying something out of your comfort zone, are you willing to acquire a second thing to wear it with? And, and just all of these questions that I thought I had asked myself as a conscious consumer, the deeper I got into what does it mean to understand your fashion personality type, there are so many different boundaries you can put on what you purchase. Yeah, no, for sure. And I actually was talking about this with one of my girlfriends and she's probably actually listening to this. So hi, Leah. Um, But she has a very like signature silhouette to the point where like she showed me a piece of clothing that she had just bought. I'm like, I didn't know that was new because I thought you wore that all the time because she just has like this look to her. It's like wide leg pants and like really cute tops and that's just her vibe. And so, yeah, you can get totally get away with having like a quote unquote uniform or like just something that you stick with, but looking completely different every single time. So we can totally pull it off. Yeah. Uniform is a good way of thinking about it. And then in the rebuilding phases of that uniform and cleaning out your closet and then trying to slowly incorporate new pieces that you think will be classics or really high quality classics. There was also a lot of things in the book that I hadn't previously thought about like seams or stitching. I had to go to the mall the other day for something specific. I was looking for that. I couldn't find secondhand. And I was like, you know, I have to just do it and go to the mall and pull the trigger. And I had never looked at stitching so closely before I read this book. What does it mean to be a high quality piece? Is this properly lined? Is it going to be hard to clean? That's one that I think about a lot because I hate to, I hate cleaning and we can get into that. But (laughs) there were so many little nuances of purchasing that I also hadn't thought about. Totally. And yeah, just her walking through, like looking through the seams, like the, the fabric type, like you just said, I had never thought that closely about my clothing at all. And so like I said earlier, I, I rent sometimes and I had gotten like this new shirt and I look inside the tag and I was like, oh, this is a hundred percent cashmere and it's dry clean only like, oh my gosh. And I'm like freaking out, like, wait, I know how to handle this. Elizabeth outlined it for us in the book, just like calm down. But sometimes like certain pieces scare me now. Cause I'm like, this is too much care to like understand how to do this properly. Yeah, I think a lot about care. And I also thought it was interesting that she spent so much time talking about stain removal. Because quite, yeah, quite frequently when I buy something secondhand or when I'm shopping secondhand, if something has a stain that I can't immediately think will come out in the wash, I just leave it behind. Mm -hmm, And that's mm -hmm. kind of silly now that I'm reading this book. It really helped me rethink stain removal and, and laundry. Yeah, and it's, and I love the way that she framed like, you don't have to wash your clothes after every single use. Like I knew that about jeans for sure, but everything else I'm like, no, like you washed your clothes, like obviously. And even there was one tip about athletic wear and like rinsing it in cold water as soon as you get home. So like, there's no bacteria buildup. I was like, that's genius. Like you don't have to like do everything so extreme and like the wash and dry cycles really wears on your clothes. So like, what if you just figured out easier ways to take care of your clothes and she just like laid it out and it just... I I just had never heard any of those tips before. And so now that I have them in my repertoire, I'm like, I can actually do this like, well. (laughs) Yeah, I was really surprised by some of the tips that I learned. I'm pretty good about not drying my athletic wear, Mm -hmm. but I felt like the dryer was kind of villainized throughout the book. This narrative of like the dryer is destroying your closet. And I was like, oh my, I've been doing this to myself. (laughs) All of this, all of these clothing that I'm already complaining is falling apart. I did it myself. Mm -hmm. So there was also this kind of, uh, I don't know, like this guilt that I associated after I was reading the laundry chapter. I was like, wow, I'm, 
I'm terrible. Like what kind of, uh, you know, self homemaker am I? (laughs) But they also like clothing companies don't teach us that. Like we're not taught that the dryer isn't like the best way to care for our clothes, but it's, it's just really interesting when you think about it, like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like nuking clothes, like putting it in a microwave, basically like every single week or maybe multiple times a week, if you do laundry more often, like that doesn't really like make a lot of sense when you're trying to care for something long-term. So it just giving you the alternative is super helpful. Yeah. What was something that you were surprised to learn about in this book? It could be about laundry or anything else. Um, I have to think about that. I think, I think one thing that was interesting that I definitely didn't come into the book, like really understanding is just luxury brands and the value of those, like the whole resale industry with luxury products. Like I, that was part of my hesitancy, not hesitancy, but like, I was a little bit nervous when I first got the book. Cause I was like, Ooh, I'm not a fashion person. Like, I don't know what a, I think she talks about like a nineties Gucci shirt or something like that. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm sure it's great. Um, But yeah, just like learning about like the differences within luxury brands and like how you value them differently and like why they're luxury, that really helped just like made things click for me because I just thought it was kind of like a, a, a fancy thing for fancy people. But like, when you think about it, like obviously the care and the craftsmanship is like what adds to the value. And so learning about that was really cool for me. How about you? I completely forgot about that piece, actually. Yeah, I liked that she talked about certain luxury pieces. I definitely admire luxury clothing, but I am by no means a consumer of luxury items. But I love the idea of fashion and luxury clothing Mm -hmm. and some craftsmanship to it. Actually, the very first book club that I did was with Megan McSherry, Mm -hmm. and it was on um, a book called Deluxe that went into luxury fashion and what is worth money and what is not worth money and kind of that more behind the scenes of it. Some are certainly worth the uh, dollar amount that you're paying for a handbag, but then there are a lot of ethical reasons that handbags shouldn't cost what they do because there's no worries about size inclusivity. There's a Mm. lot of kind of corners that you can cut when you look at accessories like that. Sure. Yeah. But I thought it was really interesting that she was like kind of uh, glorifying leather products in a way that I hadn't heard in a very long time, especially in the environmental community. And she was like, if you're going to have one nice bag, make it a quality leather handbag that you can have for years and years and hold on to it for a really long time. And if you need to resell it, you can resell it. So I, yeah, I really appreciated the balance, this moral okay, that if you're going to buy into a luxury brand, or if you're going to buy a new leather product or a luxury item secondhand, that's fine. Just do it consciously, mindfully, and just do it once. Don't become someone who needs tons of bags all the time. For sure. And I love how she frames it in a way of knowing what to look for. Like the same thing with the seams and the fabrics, like you're looking for this type of material and this type of stitching quality and this type of handiwork. And then obviously like this labor and what all the other pieces to it. But like when you're actually physically looking at the piece, you're looking at these specific things to know that it's actually a high quality product. And that like, I was like, oh, that's what luxury is not just like fancy brand names. So yeah, I thought it was really cool. Yeah, I thought that was cool. And I also thought it was really sweet how excited she got about certain luxury things that she bought. Yeah, yeah. She's like, this specific piece. I'm like, oh, that's so cute. Yeah, yeah. Half the time I didn't know what she was talking about, but I was like, you know, I'm going to look it up and I'm happy for you. Good on you for getting a deal. Exactly, exactly. 
Is there anything that you would not have purchased before reading this book that you would purchase now? That I would have not purchased. Um, I so I wrote in my notes, like just a note to myself, that I need a black bodysuit apparently because she talked about it very briefly, and I was like, wait, that's actually the perfect staple piece that I think I need, like to under all my work clothes, like when I wear like little shorts, like whatever. I think a black bodysuit is like a staple piece that I'm going to need to purchase. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Actually, (laughs) right before I read this book, I had just bought my first ever bodysuit. Okay. And I read that bit and I was like, good on me. Like I (laughs) was uh, patting myself on the back. I think mine would have been a high quality pair of denim. Okay. And I don't have a whole lot of, I think I have two pairs of jeans. They're both from Everlane and uh, for ethical reasons, I don't want to repurchase from Everlane, Mm -hmm. but I started thinking very heavily about denim after I read her bit about uh, different denim brands of cotton, cotton production. And if you're going to have denim, you just need one pair of really nice, heavy duty Levi's that are going to last you forever. Or she names some more um, zero waste ethical brands that you could purchase from. And denim is something that I've always struggled with purchasing just because I know about the environmental impact, but I felt like after this, I got a green flag to invest in a nice pair of jeans. Yeah. And I think that's like the theme throughout the book is like, it, it does matter what you buy, but also like whatever you buy, make sure you're buying it for the long haul if you possibly can. And just like be intentional and thoughtful about it. So yeah, totally down with that. Yeah. Yeah. Are you someone who typically, sorry to switch gears, are you someone who typically tailors or mends your clothing? I don't usually tailor. I usually, this is like a whole nother thing about size inclusivity, but I'm a straight size and like I can fit into just about anything that I buy straight off the rack. So that's a privilege that I have, but I do like to mend things. I'm working on getting better at it with things like socks and like little like things like even underwear sometimes like little rips like sometimes I get really lazy and I'm like uh but then think about I'm like it's really not that hard to like figure out how to do like a quick stitch and that just saves that pair of of whatever for that much longer so I'm working on learning how to darn socks that's like one of my next projects that's a good one that's a really good uh environmental Susie Homemaker type project. <laughs> totally. And it's a little bit scary too, because you're like, oh my gosh, like am I gonna do this right? Or how's it gonna look? But it's just like it's a sock. Like you can just practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's good too, that you don't have this pressure on yourself when you're starting with something like socks. Right. Even buttons sometimes. Mm-hmm. I have a like a button-down shirt that I love for work or any sort of like more dressed up event and it has one button that's cracked in half and I know I'm just wearing it broken and kind of embarrassed every time I need to roll up my sleeves and have this broken button exposed but I'm nervous to take it off and replace it yeah and something like a sock would be an excellent place to practice just easy mending for sure. And I'm more of a, because I'm so nervous about like messing up, which this book has helped me with my confidence, but I haven't like done anything since reading it. Um, but when I did have any kinds of tears or like I had these pair of shoes that I got that like the, it just started like flapping open. Um, I took it to a cobbler and like, I just paid for the service. And so that is also another way if you're kind of nervous about it, or you don't have the time to experiment, like just finding a tailor or a cobbler to figure it out for you is really helpful too. Yeah. I liked that she mentioned cobblers and tailors and learning about 
experts on certain fabrics, Mm -hmm. like people who specialize in shoes or denim, or I didn't even realize to a cobbler, someone who specializes in leather, particularly in shoes, you can also take your leather jackets or handbags Mm -hmm. or things that need to be mended. And I had never thought about that before. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And it just like, I feel like when I say it, like I took it to the cobbler, that feels very just like old timey, like who am I talking to? But it's just such a foundational thing that I feel like everyone, like she said, everyone should have a tailor and a cobbler, like on speed dial, basically, so that you know where you're going for that kind of stuff, because it happens all the time. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting suggestion, Mm -hmm. because I also have come to the point in my closet where I'm like, okay, I haven't worn these pants in a long time, because they don't fit right. Mm -hmm. And yes, I love the pants, but I'm never going to wear them if I'm not confident in them. So maybe it is time for me to find a tailor. And for some reason, that wasn't the forethought in my mind, which is a really silly way to think about my closet and just acquire stuff that I'm probably never going to wear. Sure. And I, and I think it's just because it's so, um, I don't think it's that like revolutionary, but it's not very commonplace for people of our generation to do those kinds of things that it's like, oh, like, what is this going to cost? Would it just be cheaper and easier to buy a new thing? And I think that's just like the way that we were taught. So finding a tailor and like figuring out how much it costs to get this specific repair. Like it's just not something that we're used to. So we have to unlearn it for ourselves. Yeah. That's the good way to look at it. It's just a matter of kind of reframing these societal norms that we've absorbed from this disposable reality that we're buying Mm -hmm. into, whether or not we realize it. Exactly. I'm glad that you mentioned cost because there was a good bit at the end about living wages, which I loved that Mm -hmm. chapter. I feel like fashion revolution and remake our world would be two organizations that I really adore. And they're, they're things that I love to just like consume their content and their policy work. And I think they do great jobs, but I had never learned so deeply about what it means to provide a living wage, how that's calculated, how different it is from country to country. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that chapter. How do you feel about the the whole end part about what it means to have a fashion revolution? I I love that. And I honestly wish it was more of the book. Like it was like, I wish it went on for a couple more sections because that, I think that's the most important part for me in this book was yes, there's all these individual things that we can do. We can shop well, we can repair, we can go to our tailor, but also thinking about the larger systems and how thinking about your conscious closet connects to the greater climate crisis is the like key thing about this book that made me so happy when I finished reading it. I was like, that's, that's the thing, like thinking about pollution, fair wages, the energy and water that goes into cotton and other resources, like even just the fabrics that she walked through, synthetics versus natural and what's good, what's not so good, but seems good. All of that nuance is just so key into seeing the whole picture. And so I really appreciate how she broke it down very basic, like talk to me like I'm five, what is the problem here? And then outline the solutions. And it was just so helpful to walk through all that. Yeah, I really, really liked that. And I also really appreciated as someone who lives in America, the bit about Los Angeles and Mm. made in LA. And I feel like I allude to that a lot on this show and just like in conversations, but made in LA is such a lie. Mm -hmm. Like I just, every time I see it, I really have to check myself because it feels really good to be buying something that has a label that says made in the U S Right, but it's also 
largely unregulated in the state of California. These are still individuals that are not earning a living wage, just very often simply by being undocumented immigrants. Like there are so many issues beyond living wage in America that I, I mean, there are these issues globally, of course, but I think as an American, I want to buy made in the U.S., but I'm like, this doesn't really hold that much weight or as much as I would like to believe that it does. Right. And it's, it kind of brings up the themes of like the very blatant greenwashing, like the brands who are just not doing anything versus like these kind of like, that seems good, but I don't really know enough to know if this is BS or not. And I love how she dives deep into that where she gives you clear insight on like, okay, here are some of the problems. Like, and here's what to look for. If the brand can't answer this, this, and this question, like maybe you should double check it. So it just helps. Cause like, like you said, made in LA sounds great in theory, but like, if you don't know what that means or what's going on in California, like, I mean, why would you, if you're not diving deep into this topic, then you wouldn't know those kinds of things or what questions to ask. Right. Right. I really liked the bit in the living wage part about who is actually responsible for living wages. Yeah. I just, I thought it was interesting both from the like fair wages side, but also like the consumer side, like should consumers be in charge of paying for the upcharge of quality, paying for the upcharge of all of the things that are necessary to make fair, ethical, and environmentally sustainable clothing? Or should the brands just like inherently be doing this? And I thought like, it's definitely both. Like it's a symbiotic relationship. The brands need to be doing a lot of the legwork, but the consumers also have a role to play in making sure that they're like, like caring for our clothes properly and shopping secondhand when we can and reselling our clothes. So I I don't like to talk in extremes. Like I definitely think that there's both parties need to do more, but definitely the heavier burden is on the brands, like get their act together. (laughs) Right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because there was also a, a piece in that chapter that believe the stat was, I should just go back and refer to it, but I'm almost positive. It said less than 2% of the retail price of an item is typically associated with the garment worker and the actual production side of the clothing item, which Which I thought was crazy, (laughs) which is crazy. So think about how much is probably going into the extraction of these materials. It's probably Mm -hmm. a pretty similar small percentage, what, two or 3%. Mm -hmm. And then how much is the brand taking? And uh, yes, some of that is profit. And some of that is also overhead of like, why are you employing people to maintain uh, programs that don't necessarily work? Could you better utilize your workforce to start programs like an actual recycling program as opposed to something like that H&M buyback, you know, kind of big old lie that we're all Mm -hmm. like up in arms about on the internet. So it just got me thinking a lot about the amount of money flowing through the fashion industry. And if 2% is really going towards the garment worker mm-hmm. they could do a lot better oh yeah for, for sure there's <laughs> definitely room for improvement there so definitely a huge supporter of cutting back those profit margins for the brand and just giving a little just a little a lot more to workers who are actually doing the work <laughs> <laughs> I agree I agree was there anything that you kind of checked yourself when it comes to greenwashing or an accidental fast fashion purchase upon reading this book? I think the biggest one for me was on the um, the whole conversation around viscose and like bamboo fibers. And because I think that's like one of the biggest trends that I, I truly did not know before reading this, but 
not all bamboo fibers are made in a way that's environmentally friendly. Like it could be even worse for the environment by the way that it's processed and didn't know that until I read this book. And so now having that awareness, I'm able to ask better questions. But before I thought bamboo is good, right? You, you want to make things out of bamboo, but understanding how it's processed is really important and that there is good bamboo and then there's not so good bamboo. And what does that mean? And what does that look like? So I think that would be my mind. How about you? That's a good one. I mean, on the topic of fabrics, I was really surprised also by that section on viscose and polyester of how many names it can go under and how unregulated a lot of these labels are when we are talking about synthetic fibers. So that was pretty surprising to me, but you kind of alluded to this earlier about the cobblers. I really do not think about shoes at all for some reason. Before Mm. I read this book, and I told you I'm a style seeker, like I like I love a dramatic shoe, but very often (laughs) it's like I'm buying Steve Madden from a Nordstrom Rack. Mm -hmm. So my idea of attaching myself to a stylish shoe that I can buy affordably is fast fashion. And I don't know why I didn't associate shoes and trendy footwear with fast fashion before this, but I now recognize the I mean, like copycat nature of a lot of these shoe brands that they are all just replicating designs that come from bigger fashion labels. And they very frequently are made with leather items that we know are pretty environmentally harmful. Mm -hmm. And we're not even getting into like the animal cruelty of shoes. I didn't realize that uh, shoes were the biggest leather product on the market. And it just really, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense once you hear it, but I thought a lot about shoes and like even running shoes. I'm someone who's quite active and I love to aggressively wear out my shoes. Like I will wear them until I cannot walk in them anymore. (laughs) And I didn't realize like, I guess uh, there's no ethical issues with replacing your shoes more frequently because she had stats on how often you could really use a shoe that I think it was a running shoe you can use for 300 to 500 miles. And I was like, oh, wow. Well, like how much am I walking? How much am I, you know, thinking about like the wear and tear of a shoe yeah, and the fast fashion of it all that, that really tripped me up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also didn't really think too deeply about shoes because again, I'm a very, I'm a traditionalist. And so I have like, I don't know, maybe I have quite a few shoes, but it's like, I have my staples. And so I don't really like buy new shoes, but the new outfit I have, like 10 shoes that I wear interchangeably with everything. And so, um, yeah, definitely thinking about shoes and like jewelry and accessories a little bit differently. That definitely sparked that in my brain. Yeah. Jewelry is one that I've always been quite conscious of. I think just because it occurred to me a few years ago, I had a friend who was a geologist and she Mm. worked one summer in a mine Mm. and it was a silver mine. And, and it never occurred to me that my jewelry actually had to come from the earth And once I had that experience with someone, I was like, I'm only going to buy things that I can wear every single day. Mm -hmm. And that was a great emotional check a few years ago, which I don't know if a lot of people realize just the mining industry that exists, not just in America, but globally, the amount of wastewater that comes out of that, the runoff, just like there's so much dirty environmental stuff that comes Mm -hmm. along with mining that if I'm just going to buy one pair of earrings every I don't know what five years like that's good enough that's that's plenty for me right and on top of the environmental stuff that we talk about in the book but also the human rights and human safety like i don't know if i watched it because of this book or just happened at the same time but i saw a youtube video about a mine 
somewhere in Central Africa where it was just like a hole in the ground. There was no ladder. No, they didn't wear hard hats. Like, and then I think there was like, I forget who the company was or where it was exactly, but they were like, yeah, if, if the mine caves in, it just caves in and then we move on. I was like, what? Like you just, just the way that we, and that kind of goes into the whole conversation about zero waste. It's like what we view as disposable and what we value. Like you just think that pulling out whatever mineral or diamond or whatever, and then just, if it fails, it fails. And then you move on. Like, that's okay with you. Like, that's just not okay to me. And so just reframing, like he said, that this stuff comes from the earth. People have to get it out. It requires labor, it requires effort and water and energy. And like thinking about all those pieces at every single point of your interaction with these products. Yes. Oh my God. I, I'm thinking about Uncut Gems with Adam yes. Sandler. Have you seen? That's what yes. I'm thinking of right now. I'm like, that is accurate. Or Blood Diamond. I think about Blood Diamond a lot. I think about diamonds in general, but that's like a whole other rabbit hole we could yeah. go down that there's so many issues with diamonds. But I'm glad that you mentioned zero waste and the idea that these materials do have to come from the earth and you should be really conscious of what you are acquiring and then just mm-hmm. making it last as long as possible because there was also a good bit, you alluded to this earlier too, about what to do during a closet clean out. What's the ethical thing to do with your stuff? So right. I'd love to hear a little bit about your your take on that because that was a chapter that I really had to actively take notes on and read quite closely. Right. And I think that what I'm finding is that it just takes a lot of research and patience. And a lot of people don't have that. Like, it's just, it's kind of a luxury to be able to spend a lot of time on the internet, look for the best possible place for this specific item, like a couple. So I was, um, this is kind of a tangent, but I'll come back. <laughs> um, I was a ice skater all throughout like my childhood into college. And so I have two ice skating dresses in my closet that I have been holding on to since college that I'm like, I'll do something with these one day, but I'm like, no, it's time to get rid of it. Like, let me find like someone to give these to or sell them to. And just like, that takes a lot of time and effort that not a lot of people are willing to do because it's just easier to throw it in the trash or send it to Goodwill or wherever. And so that's what I'm finding is that like this stuff takes time. Like if you want to intentionally rehome all this stuff, you have to do a lot of legwork and that's just not, it's not always as easy as I'd like it to be. Yeah. That's a really good example because those are specialty items too. It's not that easy to just sell them on Poshmark. (laughs) Not at all. last kind of big overarching question I have for you. I'd love to know if you had a least favorite part of the book. Was there anything that you did not feel was pertinent to the conscious closet conversation in general? That's a really good question. I, I definitely like to look at when I read like different perspectives, just like I like to look at it with all the best intentions, like this person is coming at it with a good perspective. So I didn't have too many criticisms um, of the book. I think the only thing I would say, it's kind of not answering your question, but I'm going to say it anyway. She has like little interviews at the end of every chapter with like sustainable leaders or um, like there were, there's just a couple of different like platforms or brands that she would talk to about that topic that she had just spoken about. And she interviewed, I'm going to name them Reformation in one of the chapters. And I was hoping you were going to say, okay, that. good. Oh. <laughs> Cause I was like, <laughs> 
I, so I have to start with, I don't shop at Reformation just because I, I'm not like a shopper. So I just, I don't know too much about the brand as a consumer, but I, I have heard grumblings and rumblings that people have issues and I never really understood it because I'm not a customer of theirs. But when I read the section, I was like, oh, I get it because I can't remember exactly what section it was after, but there were some pieces about like, they are the most sustainable brand. Their goal is to be extremely sustainable. And that's like centered in everything that they do. And then they talk about how the goal of what they're trying to do is to have no trade-offs between like fair labor and materials. And I'm like, actually, like you just outed yourself because there will always be trade-offs when you're talking about sustainability. And then they talk about how like we're creating new new sustainable styles every week, I think it was. And I was like, there again, you are outing yourself for being not sustainable because a fast fashion brand that is making new lines every week is inherently unsustainable. And so that was frustrating for me to read as them being framed as an expert or a leader because they clearly in, in their answers show that they're not leaders in this space. Right. Wow. Interesting. Okay. I was going to say in general, I wasn't crazy about the interviews just overall. I don't really like to read interviews. So that's kind of a personal thing for me, Mm -hmm. but I'm glad that you mentioned reformation. I don't think I've ever, I mean, I hope that no one comes for me for saying this, but I don't think I've ever spoken too thoroughly poorly about any brand. Yeah. And I don't have any relationships at all with reformation. I don't, I've never purchased from them originally just because I didn't feel like the quality of the clothing was worth the price. Like I would pick up a $200 dress and it could have definitely been made at forever 21. If I did not know better and look at the label and kind of uh, remind myself that this was indeed a sustainable brand, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. but they have had a lot of ethical issues in the past. And there's been so much discussion online of their ethical issues. And I would say not as severe, but perhaps quite similar to those Everland issues I referred to earlier but if you are not treating your employees well, how can you actively call yourself sustainable? Mm-hmm. And I just have a lot of problems when people forget that there are humans on the other end of all of these things. I believe the stat is that one in every six people in the world works somehow in the garment industry. Oh, wow. okay. And yeah, which is pretty stark. So between the actual acquisition of materials, uh, the sewing, the actual sales, everything like that. There are one in six people in the world touch clothing somehow in their career. So yeah, which is, yeah, that's a pretty stark uh, statistic. But beyond that, if we are talking about an American-based brand that is establishing themselves as a leader in the space of sustainable fashion, you cannot ignore the people. Mm -hmm. That just, it just seems, it just seems so silly. Yeah. And I think there's a difference between, because that's when like, there's a gray space in the the word greenwashing, which I try to be very clear about what I mean when I say that, but there's a difference between being a work in progress. Like we're, we know that we're a big brand, we're growing really fast and we're trying this thing, but there's some trails we have to make versus like, actually their mindset is not right. Like I do not inherently agree with the way that they look at sustainability. And so that's a problem for me. And so when I was reading that interview, I was just like cringing. I'm like, you're, you I think their tagline on Instagram is like, we're the most sustainable thing as, besides being naked. And I'm like, actually, no, you're not by any stretch of the imagination. And so it's just a little hard for me to watch them being elevated like that when it's just, there's so many problems there. 
Yeah. And I think the interesting thing too, is that Reformation and Everlane and brands that have had a lot of discussions about them online are kind of the tip of the iceberg. There are so many brands that are calling themselves sustainable Mm -hmm. when it doesn't really mean a whole lot of anything. Mm -hmm. And I think the only way to truly expose yourself as an actively sustainable brand would perhaps be like a behind the scenes of social of like really transparent brand reporting, but I'm thinking even smaller brands, it's really hard to put out a brand report every single year of your climate commitments. Like when we are shopping small, what's the leeway that we're Mm -hmm. allowing these quote unquote sustainable brands? Yeah. Well, I mean, so I work with a lot of small businesses, like either as my clients or just speaking with business owners. And that's something that they get stuck on a lot is that we don't want to call ourselves sustainable, or we don't want to put it out there that we're a sustainable brand when we don't have the time to do all that reporting and whatnot. And I was, I try to tell them that, you actually don't have to do all of that stuff if you're a small business. It's just being able to answer the questions honestly and transparently. And so if like when I when I shop and I have a question like, can I recycle this? Or where did you get this ingredient? Or whatever my question is, and they come back to me and explain it, I'm like, okay, cool, like awesome. If like it's not about like having it all right or like on your website or in a fancy report. It's just like, what did you actually do here? Can you answer me truthfully? And then we can move on. But yeah, it's, it's tough to watch big brands just like blatantly not be on that level. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you mentioned your work in this one, because I was going to ask you on the topic of greenwashing, of course, I'm sure that you can't, you know, diagnose me as a fictional brand here, (laughs) but let's say there's a brand that comes to you and says, we want to be a sustainable brand and we want to do better. What are the three basic things that we can start off with? Yeah. So I actually try not to answer that question because I'm, sh- um, I'm sure that's hard. <laughs> no, it is. It's not even uh, it's it's difficult for many reasons because there are so many things that are at play and it 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 kind of glazes over all of the nuance and in work that's required to actually be sustainable because people want quick fixes, quick ROI. How can I save money tomorrow? And that is just that is not what sustainability is going to do for you. And so you don't have to be like perfectly altruistic to be sustainable, but you do have to be willing to do some work. And so when people say like, oh, I want to be sustainable, what do I do first? And it's like, well, let's analyze like, what does sustainability actually mean for you? What do you care about? What do you have the capacity for? What do you have the budget for? So I have to ask all those questions first before I can give you even like a beginning of a diagnosis of what we can do next. So yeah, I try to, I try to avoid answering that question. <laughs> well, I think that you handled it very well because even asking questions about capacity and budget and how much are you willing to risk in a sense in order to self-label your your company Mm -hmm. as sustainable because it's not something that's actively regulated so if someone says i want to be a sustainable brand it has to be independently motivated and it has to be something like you said that they work towards and there was a bit in this book about emailing brands asking for more and just asking basic questions which i think as a consumer i've only recently started to do probably about a year ago, I started emailing brands. I'm like, okay, you're calling yourself sustainable. Where does your fabric come from? Or like, where can I, where can I learn more about X, Y, and Z? And that gave me a lot of confidence in my purchasing. Even if the response is we're doing our best. And right now we have biodegradable mailers or something like that. I'm like, all right, well, at least you're being honest. At least you're being transparent. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I like to call that, I mean, there might be a better word for it, but like consumer activism, like I just do it truly out of a place of curiosity. Like I bought this candle sometime during the pandemic and on their website, they're like, we'll take these back. And I was like, awesome. Like, will you take other candles back or just yours? Like, oh, just ours for now. But like, we'll think about it. And so like getting people's minds going like, oh, that's a possibility that we could get free candle containers from our consumers. And then therefore you're getting some brand loyalty. You're getting, um, you're saving money on buying raw materials. Like getting people to just like think about this stuff is what I'm trying to do. So even if they're not my client, I'm always like trying to get the zero waste like mindset within people. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. That's a really good way to look at it. Consumer activism. And I also went through a phase where I was like, maybe I should be writing more letters to my Mm. brands or to my senators or Elizabeth Sagren's article, President Biden appoint a fashion czar. I spoke Mm. with her about it on the show too. And then after I had that conversation, I thought a lot about regulation and I thought a lot about uh, just the way that brands are completely on their own when they want to call themselves sustainable versus how they are actually sourcing their materials or treating their employees and the garment workers. And there's just so much nuance to fashion. It's such a massive industry. It's hard to believe that it's so unregulated Mm -hmm. and just planting the seed as a consumer is probably the best thing that you can do at this point in our, uh, you know, political, the political space of how are we going to regulate brands? Totally. And I would, I would just add to that. So I um, recently joined the board of Zero Waste Washington and part of the organization is driving policy in the state of Washington, but also like the greater Pacific Northwest. And I say all of that is because I'm starting to get more involved in the policy side of things. And so um, there's one state senator here in Washington that's really involved in like pushing forward zero waste initiatives. And so I heard her speak recently and she basically told us like the key to getting your legislators to care is like be extremely loud and with large numbers of people. So like you sending an email is great, but like get 20 of your friends to do it on the same day. And like, maybe it's not a canned email, but like getting those 20 different hits on very specific, like when legislative session is in session, if you like organize yourselves, that is the best way to get things through because it's, it's incredibly like, when I'm watching the stuff behind the scenes, like being on the board, it's very strategic, like do it on this day, send this note to this person and it's more likely to move out of committee. Like it's, it's wild. So definitely if there's like an organization that's doing like anyone that you've mentioned already, um, fashion policy or legislation, like get involved with them and look at their calls to action and just like get on board. Oh my goodness. Okay. Wow. Thank you so much for mentioning that. I wish I knew that beforehand because I would have had something ready to go for this episode to say, we're going to put it up after this in the show notes, go ahead and download it. (laughs) But this is such a good thing to think about moving forward because you do have to think about things like when is the legislative board in session or Mm -hmm. the legislative body, I'm sorry. Uh, when are things getting voted on? What's getting voted on this? And I also think from a policy side, um, working in government, I've really come to appreciate how things are tied together when they don't necessarily need to be and how certain representatives attach themselves to issues that don't really have anything to do with what they're actually advocating for, but it'll help them in the long run. So the, I mean, the politics of politics, I suppose. Exactly. (laughs) So it's it's all really interesting, especially Mm -hmm. in the context of fashion. So I'm going to be keeping an eye out for big uh, letter writing campaign days 
And yeah. I know that both remake and fashion revolution always do something like that. And fashion revolution, especially has a whole week dedicated. I think it's in October nice. on the anniversary of the Rana oh, Plaza, Plaza. Yeah. collapse in Bangladesh. They do a whole a week of campaigning around that. So um, I will definitely keep an eye out, but thank you for that. For sure. uh, for thanks sure. for the tip. Thanks for the tip. <laughs> All right. Last question I'm going to ask you. How would you rate this book? Goodreads out of five, The Conscious Closet by Elizabeth Klein. I would say a four and a half out of five because it was a perfect book for beginners. And so when I rate books, I think about who it's for, like who the audience is. If you are brand new, like you're a fast fashion queen and you've never thought about switching your closet over, this is a perfect introductory book for you. So four out of five. Four and a half out of five. <laughs> four and a half out of five. How That's a good you? one. I was going to say four and a half as well. And then I thought about it a little bit more. And because I wasn't crazy about the interviews, I'm going to say four out of five. Okay. I thought it was a like a super speedy read. I felt yes. like I read it really quickly. And every time I sat down, I whipped through a good chunk of it. Same. Especially because I was so excited about what I was reading and highlighting and getting into. But there was also definitely parts that I glazed over. Like I think the handbook bit about how to mend, how Ooh. to properly care for your clothes. The ones that are more like reference chapters, yeah. I skimmed because I was not mending at the time. Right. So right. I felt like it could have been maybe like organized a little better. Maybe the uh, to-do sections could have been at the end or how-to sections could have right. been at the end. Or I, I definitely would have taken out all those interviews because you know it's so hard to actually account for people over time in a published piece. So yeah. maybe- maybe that's like a little nitpicky of me, the organization of it kind of (laughs) threw me off. But even beyond beginners, I found myself learning a lot, like I said, about looking at at seams when I'm shopping for something, looking at even just the diagrams of like this kind of seam versus that kind of seam. This is what Mm -hmm. you want to go for. That got me thinking a lot. So I thought it was great. And honestly, I I would highly recommend it. And again, I'm knocking off one star for organization, but that is so nitpicky of me, but I loved it. Yeah. I I also recommend this to people too. So it's, I thought it was a great book. Okay. Wow. Well, thank you so much for reading with me this month. This has been so good. I'm glad that we both enjoyed it so thoroughly and I learned a lot from you. Thanks for the conversation. Of course. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening to today's book club episode on The Conscious Closet by Elizabeth Klein with Moji Egan. I will have Moji's links down below. I will have the book link down below, as well as all of the episodes I mentioned throughout today's conversation. So you can dive a little deeper with me if you are so inclined. If you enjoyed today's episode, if you've stuck around this long, don't forget to rate and review the show wherever you're listening. Make sure you're subscribed, et cetera, et cetera. I hope to interact with you on social. I want to hear your thoughts on this. We've got a lot of fun stuff coming up on this show in the next few months, and I appreciate you sticking around and interacting with me and sharing with your friends, sharing in the group chat, tagging me on your Insta stories. So with that, thanks so much. I will talk to you soon. Have a great day. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.